Hey, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackett. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spring from the Wallery. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashin and you're listening to Not the Foolish. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. And as usual, we've got a great guest lined up for you today. And the guest is slightly different. We're still talking sport, but it's actually to do with the transplant games and somebody who is acting as an ambassador for the transplant games after losing their son in a freak hockey training accident. I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. John, good to see you again. And you, and you. You settled back into life in the... Uh, in the slow lane? Yeah. <laughs> I have indeed, yes. No, no. I'm chugging along like a little tortoise on the pavement. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, as I'm getting older now, my knees won't uh, go so fast, you know. Yeah. Am I starting today? Yes, you, you kick things off. Okay, my one today, John, my topic is... Our good friends, the IOC, the International <laughs> Olympic Committee. Oh, that's funny, because I was going to go in that direction as well, but you go first. Okay, well, the thing I, I, I'm beginning to wonder is, like, you know, we've got the Olympic Games, and they came out in the past week saying that the executive board has um, said that individual athletes can compete, but those who publicly support the war against the Ukraine, Ukraine or serve in the military will be banned. And they've recommended a ban on all athletes who are contracted to the Russian or Belarusian militaries or national security agencies. Now, it says also Russia and Belarus are also set to be banned from taking part in team sports such as handball and volleyball. Now, who are the IOC? Hang hang on. If you're an individual athlete... And you've not got nothing to do with the military and you've not backed the war... Or the... the and you're not security in the military or okay, the security forces, the then you're allowed to participate. But if you're an athlete that hasn't, that doesn't back the war, isn't in the military or any of those security apparatuses, but you're in a team sport, you can't go. Yeah. Okay. Well, that involved well, perfect sense, Matt. Matt Ashley. <laughs> I know. I mean, look, the thing is, but but should the IOC be saying this? Because the way I see it is that is up to the individual or the each individual sport to set the parameters of what they believe and what their boards decide for this situation. And it shouldn't come down to the IOC. Either the IOC makes the decision, which, as we know with the history of the Olympic Games, they do not like to see countries withdrawing from their games. So they've always been tried to take a neutral stance, and they were very upset in 1980 when Jimmy Carter you know, got a lot of the Western countries to boycott Moscow. And then the IOC were very upset four years later when, of course, the former Eastern Bloc countries all boycotted the Los Angeles Games as a form of revenge against the Western nations from 1980. So I think they should butt out and it should be left purely and simply to each international sporting federation as to what they decide. But again, just touching on the point that you said there, if we go back to the 1968 Olympic Games, if you remember where it was very volatile in America. There was a lot of angst going on between the black athletes and the American Olympic Committee as to how they were being treated, whether they were given the right respect, etc. And as we know, then there was the human rights issue and the salute given by Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Now, what a lot of people won't know is some of the athletes, and this was not just black athletes, in the American team back in 1968, were in the American military. And they were told if they supported 
So even if they wore the badge, you know, that Peter Norman got in trouble for, which was, you know, the solidarity behind, what was it, the uh, United Athletes for Human Rights or whatever it was, if they wore that badge, they were, their career in the military was under threat. They would get a different posting. They would miss out on a promotion. One particular athlete, and I forget his name, he was actually told that he would not be sent on a second tour of duty to Vietnam if he didn't protest. He didn't protest when the Olympic Games were over, they sent him back to Vietnam again. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, can athletes, and, and I mean, can we trust these national Olympic committees or the IOC to make these decisions? I think it should be left with the actual sporting federation itself or the international sporting federations to decide what they think is best for their sports and let their members vote on whether they allow the Russians and Belarusians to participate, be it a team event or be it uh, an individual event. Well, obviously they've chosen sides. Sports decided to choose sides in this war. Yeah, exactly. Well, Um, some sports have, let's be fair. Not all. Um, That's very uncomfortable. Regardless of the morality of what's what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment, it's still uncomfortable that the rest of us can decide unilaterally decided the morality of all this war and stuff by excluding one country and saying, but these guys are all right. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, though, I think, I think you've got it. There's a real issue if you're going, you're okay, but you're not. You play in a team, so no, you're yeah, right. Yeah, like, you can't do that. And I don't think the IOC should be doing that when it's claiming to be totally apolitical and, and has always said politics should not come into sport. They are making sports really political by this statement. Well, they've... They've had no problem in the past in letting certain countries compete, despite the fact those certain countries have invaded sovereign nations. Absolutely. It's not as if this is this problem of one nation invading another is a new one that they've never come across before. It's just in the past they've chosen to ignore it, and it's actually been national federations that have made the political statements. It was the Americans that said, we're not going to Moscow. It wasn't the IOC that said, exactly, oh, well, yeah. invading Afghanistan's a bad thing. You know, um, and they they actually fought to get to try and get those countries to come along to the Olympic Games, despite Russia invading a sovereign nation. Which you know now Russia's invaded another sovereign nation. <laughs> why? 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 What's the difference? Yeah, uh, and I mean, could it have something to do with the ethnicity of the people that are involved in this conflict, perhaps? But, but I mean, to me, if, if you're not going to leave it to the individual sports, and the reason I say we should go with the individual sports is within those individual sports, every member nation has a vote. So therefore, you can put it out and go, what do you want? And although we know as well, as we have in political referendum or referenda, there are issues then as to how you phrase that question that you want your members to vote on. But I think if you say, are you happy to compete? against Russian and Belarusian um, athletes as well as Ukrainian athletes at the Olympic Games. Yes, no. It, it goes out to the members. The members, nations like the Australian, um, say, Hockey Federation or uh, Football Australia, should then go to its athletes and say, are you happy to compete against these people? Get a consensus from them and then base their vote on that. And to me, that's a much better way to go than to have the people at the top trying to dictate what should happen. Of course, that's one way to look at all of this, Ash. Maybe um, we should turn it on its head a little bit and, you know, maybe we should be congratulating the IOC for actually drawing a line in the sand in this instance 
and picking a point to move forward from. I mean, now we know exactly how the IOC is going to treat China when they invade Taiwan, don't we? <laughs> well, that was a big debate, wasn't it? What was that in, uh, which Olympic Games was that? That was 64 Tokyo, wasn't it? Where I don't think China competed because the IOC was recognising Taiwan, but then Taiwan had to compete, and I'm probably going to get it wrong. I think they had to compete as Taiwan or Formosa rather than Chinese Taipei. And I apologise if I've got this slightly wrong, but I know that then one of their athletes actually walked with a piece of paper with what they wanted to be known as uh, behind the actual official banner. Well, it's interesting. Um, Hong Kong and Chinese Taipei played in a quadrangular hockey tournament last week. A quadrangular hockey tournament. They only had three teams, but there you go. Triangular? Um, no, it was quadrangular. It was called the quadrangular. But there were only three teams. <laughs> there were only three teams. Who That's hockey, missing? folks. Who was missing? That's hockey. Who was missing then, or was there? <laughs> it was just three teams. I can't remember who the other team were. Thailand. Okay. It was Thailand, Hong Kong, China, and um, Macau. Um, not Macau. Um, Chinese Taipei. Chinese Taipei. Okay. So there, there, there's, there's some recognition from from the sun level, isn't there? <laughs> Oh, let's, let's stay away from politics. As sport, should if it can, but mate, this is very much thrust upon us, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the sport can't ignore it. It's not. It, but but if you go if you go back to what the IOC was set up for, which it was to rise above all of these international conflicts, and it was there to be two weeks where the world came together in peace to compete, and it was a, a, a solidarity and through sport and this brotherhood and sisterhood. And that's what it was always supposed to be about. So the minute you start doing this, you know, oh, well, you, you've gone against your charter. Yeah. I must admit, they're in a rock and a hard place. Oh, I, I don't <laughs> deny that. I don't it's, deny that. But I don't think... My personal view is, this, is that this is not the way to go. Well, I don't think it's the last time we're going to have to broach that subject, unfortunately. I'm sure it won't be. I'm Caitlin Baxter and you're listening to Not The Footy Fair. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a very special guest joining us and she's heading down to Australia from the United Kingdom because the transplant games are being hosted in Perth from the 15th to the 21st of April. And this young lady, or this woman... Uh, had the misfortune of losing her son in a freak hockey accident, but she's turned her life around and made it a real positive through his organ donation. Lisa Wilson, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Good morning. Well, it's good morning over here anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It is indeed. Well, look, uh, I've been looking forward to catching up with you because I know you're heading down to Australia for the Transplant Games now. For some people, that's a really positive thing. But for you, it was obviously a difficult thing because you had your son passed away playing hockey. But luckily, he was an organ donor and he's actually given life to many other people. Can you maybe tell us to start with just a little bit about Tom? Yeah, that's right. So Tom uh, was 22 years old, loved playing hockey, loved all sports. Um, Tom was sports captain at school, um, loved playing any game but he got all the rugby players at school to play hockey he was that kind of a chap he could encourage everybody to play the sport he played hockey from the age of two 
but Tom was having a great time. He'd left university. He was working in London um, for a property firm, just having a great time. Um, girlfriend Daisy, but still playing hockey. He'd left university, but gone back to old Dytonians Hockey Club. And it was on a Monday night. It was Monday, the 7th of December, when I got a call to say, Lisa went, hi, it was Rob. It was Tom's best friend, Rob. He said, Lisa, you've got to come quickly. I said, sorry, Rob, where? And he said, to the hockey pitch. Tom's been hurt, badly hurt. And at nine o'clock that night in my kitchen, my world just turned upside down because Tom wasn't meant to be training that night. My Tom, my 22-year-old Tom, tall, strapping, lovely lad, looking forward to his Christmas due on the Thursday for the office and then the last league game on the Saturday. He wasn't going to train because he had a slight shin injury, but he was going to go to training, but not play, just so he could hear what the coach said for the final league game. And all this was going through my mind when Rob, I heard in the background, when Rob said, come quickly, I heard somebody say, is he still breathing? And in my mind, when I answered the phone, I thought Rob uh, Rob was telling me that Tom had gone over and hurt his ankle or something like that. And I was going to be going to casualty with him at nine o'clock at night. But when I heard that lad say, is he still breathing? My world just turned upside down. And this is when we heard that Tom was seriously hurt. We rushed to the hockey pitch as hard as fast as we could. It's about half an hour away. And when we got to the pitch, there was, well... Blue lights everywhere, helicopter, ambulances, police. And I ran as fast as I could down to the pitch, the goal mouth in the distance. Ran past the clubhouse with all his teammates lined up in the window, standing silently watching. And there was my Tom, my Tom who was fit and full of life and enjoying life to the full, lying there. And I think as a mum, I knew then that Tom probably would have gone. But they were working on him. And do you want me to tell you what happened? Please do, if you're happy to. I mean, I don't yeah, want to put you I mean, any extra pain. No, but I think your listeners would want to know why Tom had a tragic accident, an accident which took his life playing hockey, because it's a game we all love. And, and yeah, you get accidents in it, but you don't generally lose your life. There's a lot of blood sometimes when you get hit by the ball, things like that. But Tom... He did play. He was asked to go on the pitch and be a passive defender, just to stand there. So yeah. players would go around him in a training exercise before they shot at goal. And a young lad went past him and did a reverse stick shot at goal. Tom was looking the other way. He was waiting for the next pair of uh, players to come down. The stick hit Tom on the back of his head. He didn't even see it coming. Uh, hit where the brain stem is. It's exactly the same place as your young cricketer, Philip Hughes, was hit. The cricketer who, yep. who died. In fact, Tom and G were watching that game at the time when, when Philip Hughes was struck, but that's where Tom was struck. He immediately sunk to the floor, apparently unconscious, uh, went into cardiac arrest. And this is a really important point, actually, that his coach, and one of the young players who had CPR training just a week before at work, they performed CPR on Tom, realising that his heart had stopped beating until the emergency services came. And that's really important in this story because maybe they played a part in in Tom going on to be an organ donor, but they gave him CPR, the emergency services came, we arrived and they said we're rushing Tom to hospital uh, for a brain scan, but he didn't ever regain consciousness. 
And I mean, I don't think any of us can imagine how you must have felt, you and your husband then. I mean, it's it's just something that you hope never happens to you. But you, I believe it was your husband who actually was saying that he should donate the organs because if he wasn't going to live, he should make uh, give others that opportunity. Exactly. It was in intensive care that night when they said, um, we're taking him to intensive care and in 12 hours time, we will do tests to show that Tom is brain dead, which I wasn't believing at the time. Uh, but it was in the middle of the night. My husband Graham said, Lise, there isn't anything anybody can do for Tom now. No operation, but there's something Tom can do for others. Organ donation. And if my stomach hadn't turned a thousand times that night, not believing what was happening, it turned again. But I knew Graham was right. And we asked to see a donor nurse. And the donor nurse came in and said, well, actually, we can tell you Tom is on the electronic register. We have a, an electronic register in the UK where you can you can sign up and say what you want to donate. And at the age of 18, unbeknown to us, at university as a fresher, Tom had signed up at a freshers' fair. He saw the table with somebody standing there advertising organ donation. And he said to the lads he was with, because there are a couple of hockey lads, I've met them since. He said, lads, just need to sign up. I've been meaning to do this for ages. And because Tom had signed up and we found out, of course, we said yes to organ donation. I was so proud of Tom. I wanted to wake him up and say, Tom, what a great thing to do at the age of 18 without us knowing. And we said yes. But, of course, it's important. It helped us make our decision because we could have said no, even though Tom had signed up to organ donation. We could have overruled it. But, of course, it made us say yes. It made our decision easy. And I believe his organs have actually helped a lot of people. You know, we're talking tens of people, aren't we? Well, we're actually talking 50 people that he helped save and improve the lives of because it's organ and tissue donation. That's so we said fantastic. yes to everything. Yeah, all his organs were used and tissue as well, long bones to help people walk, skin for people with horrific burns. But yes, we said yes. And we got the call after the operation to say Tom's organs were exemplary. Everything was used. And we got some snippets of information about where the organs had gone. Yeah. Brilliant. Have you met any of those recipients? <laughs> wow, yes, because of course, of course, my story changed when just eight weeks after Tom died, my husband Graham suddenly died as well, just two months later, out of the blue. Um, Graham, a, a top hockey correspondent, um, was well involved in international hockey and and when he died, my daughter Pippa, who was 21 at the time, she said, Mum, let's write to the recipients. Let's find out how they're doing. So we sent Christmas cards to say, you know, you had a great, great uh, gift at Christmas. Um, we, we hope it's going well, that the, the transplant's successful. And we heard back from two. And it takes a little while. But yes, um, we built up some correspondence with two people. A little girl. She was two and a half at the time, had part of Tom's liver. She is now nine, called Lubna, and we've met, sorry, Lubna's her mum. She's called Fatima, and she's amazing. And a gentleman who received Tom's heart in Newcastle, so his heart went a long way, uh, north up the country. Um, Gordon received Tom's heart at the age of 60, and he's now 67. And oh, yes, we've met him as well. So incredible to know that, that people are alive because of Tom. Fantastic. Now, I mean, obviously terrible to lose your husband so soon after. I don't know how you got through that with your daughter, but uh, no doubt you gave each other strength. But, but one thing you were telling me as well that was 
was very nice was Great Britain played Australia I believe not long after Tom passed away and a lot of the players in the Great Britain side knew him through club hockey and university and uh, so they actually all had a minute's silence on that particular game which must have been again very very touching. Yes, my husband Graham showed me on the actual day, because of course news travels fast, you know, on the same day as Tom died, the Aussie men were playing the GB men, and Jamie Dwyer on, on the Aussie team, and the whole team, and the GB men, captained by Barry Middleton, who knew Tom, um, Harry Martin, who played with Tom from the age of nine in the Essex under nines, and then at East, um, they were playing, uh, George Pinner in goal, New, new Tom and Adam Dixon played with Tom at Nottingham Trent University where Tom signed up. They did. They stopped and had a minute silence before the game and that was sent to Graham on the day. And I remember that evening, um, after Tom donated, uh, Graham showed me the pictures and he said, look, the boys out in Australia have just had a minute silence, which was so touching. And then when Graham died, it was the ladies turn who again knew Graham because he was their, their hockey journalist internationally. They had a minute silence too on the, on the day that, that Graham died. And, and that's, that's the hockey family for you. I think one thing that's kept me going, you said it must have been a big shock. Of course it was, but the, the words we had when Tom died and then I had when Graham died internationally, the words we had from all over the world from hockey players and the FIH, Federation um, was incredible support. And I realized then that if I turned my back on hockey, then I would be losing an awful lot of friends and an awful lot of people who knew Tom and Graham. And I think that's kept me going that I, I love to talk about Tom and I love to talk about him playing hockey. And I still get a lot of support from the hockey family now, right down to Havering Hockey Club, which is where we originated. And I met Graham at the bar at Havering Hockey Club and Tom played from the age of two and, and Pippa, you know, they're on the pitch with us all the time. The hockey family is very important to mention. Well, it's like a home away from home by the sounds of things. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things, I mean, obviously you've got now very involved in this and you're promoting the fact that people want to be, must get donor cards and do that. And I think I said to you when we were talking, setting this up, my father was an orthopedic surgeon and said he wished that years ago that they'd had the system they do now because one of the worst things for him was actually having to go to a parent and say, look, can we have their organs? And the systems now today are so much better. But I suppose that is that why you've become an ambassador as well for the transplant games? Because you've seen what it can do. Well, absolutely. Of course, Graham's last words on the day he died was, at least keep Tom's memory alive. So it's one reason I do it, but it's brought so much comfort to Pippa, my daughter Pippa and I, that, that we know our decision was one that saved others' lives. I mean, what an incredible gift, the gift of life. It's free to give somebody a second chance. But yes, I was a, a PE teacher. I, I had to take an early retirement and I had no idea that the transplant games took place, a sporting event, like a sporting Olympics for people who have had um, an organ and a recipients. And I just thought I need to tell Tom's story and encourage people to A, yes, carry the donor card, but B, have that conversation because when you're in intensive care, you don't want to be thinking then and you hope it never happens to you, of course. But can you imagine the trauma or how traumatic it is of being in intensive care and facing that decision? If you already know 
what somebody would do, then then it makes it easy for you. So I love to go to the transplant games to say, look, look at these people having a second chance of life and just have that conversation. Anybody listening to this today might think, oh, I haven't told my loved one what I would do. I just need to say, look, by the way, I'd like to be like Tom. If anything happens to me, use what you like. I remember Graham saying at the kitchen table when we were sitting around once, oh, if anything happens to me, they can take what they like. And I think Tom said, what, your liver, Dad? And, and we all had a laugh. That was the only time we mentioned it because it doesn't come up in conversations. So it's important for me to trigger conversations or encourage people to watch the transplant games and people competing and show how if they hadn't had that organ from a live donor or uh, a family like me saying yes to the gift of life, they might not be there. And if you're able to get along to the transplant games and watch, you won't believe the energy that people have and how happy they are because they have a second chance of life. And that's what Tom did by that one decision. And so having that conversation and letting people know is so important so people don't struggle and know what to do if they're in that awful situation themselves. I mean, the transplant games are coming to Perth in April. And, and I mean, one thing that I was uh, intrigued about is because it's it's not a sort of there's no age limit, is it? There, there are there are athletes from all different ages participating. But the one thing I was interested in is were they athletes before or are they because they've got that second chance at life, as you mentioned there? Is it now they've thrown themselves into sport? Yeah, I know. It's incredible that you can take part from four to 80. Um, I think our youngest competitor from the GB team, I think she's, um, she's 12 years old playing, playing badminton. Um, but I do know, um, some people were fit beforehand, but if I go back to the history of the World Transplant Games in 1977, and I've met him, a surgeon, a British surgeon called Maurice Slapak, he decided that his transplant patients needed to keep fit they needed to look after the organ they received and he set up a competition behind closed doors and that was a site international um, competition Uh, but he did it behind closed doors because he didn't think the transplant patients would want to play sport in front of other people publicly but then it grew and grew and grew and uh, now it's an absolutely huge competition every two years Um, I went to my first one in 2019 in Newcastle um, with Tom's Batten a beautiful artwork Um, and then I realized that some people were taking part to look after their organs. Some were competitors beforehand. And in fact, when Tom died, a hockey player wrote to me and said, "Um, Lisa, we want to thank you for your decision. I was a very good hockey player, and then I had to have a kidney transplant. And I had to stop playing hockey because it was deemed more of a dangerous sport. We could talk about that a little bit later. But he said, I'm now playing tennis, but I need to tell you, I've been to, and I think it was Sydney. I think it was a World Transplant Games in Sydney before. He said, I've been to Australia and I won gold playing tennis. And thank you. Even though as a hockey player, I've been able to change sports. Now, that really inspired me then. And that told me and taught me about the Transplant Games. And so, yes, uh, you'd have to ask more more recipients, really, if they played sport beforehand, but they might have done and changed sports. But at the um, British Transplant Games this year, I asked Tom's two recipients, Fatima and Gordon, if they'd like to take part in the British Transplant Games. So Fatima said, yeah, I love running and swimming. And Gordon so, said, well, I play table tennis. And for the first time, they both went to the British Transplant Games in Leeds and competed, as well as 
standing by me at the opening ceremony and handing over Tom's baton, which was very special for me to stand by two people who are alive because of Tom. But Tom and G would have been, because we called Graham G, they would have been so proud that his recipients took up sport and played sport because they'd received Tom's transplant. That's just a perfect story. Tom would be really happy because that's what sport is about, getting people to take part if they hadn't done before, the social side of it. It is indeed. And I'm just thinking that's probably the best place to stop because it sort of brings the story there. And it's a very strong message that you've just given us there. Uh, I know you're coming over, Lisa, and, and hopefully if anyone wants to get in touch with you, they can get in touch through Not The Footy Show. But thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, and the games are the 15th to 21st of April in Perth. Come and say hi. Come and find Lisa Wilson, Tom's mum, and I can tell you some more of the story. Thank you so much for having me on today, Ashley. Thank you. It's brilliant. A- absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel Ricardo, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. And that was Lisa Wilson, who I must say I think is a very courageous woman yeah. to come on and talk as freely as she did about losing not just her son but also her husband. But John, again, a fantastic story though. How he Tom's death has now gone on and managed to help fifty individual people uh, by organ donation. Yeah, um, what a tragic story, and. At least something good's come out of it, you know. Yeah. As, as I said in the interview, though, my, my dad was an orthopaedic surgeon, and I remember him saying, this was a long time ago because he's 95 now, um, but it was so difficult when a young person passed away to have to go to the parents and say, look, could we have their organs because they could save other people's lives? And he said the greatest thing was when they brought out the organ donor card and then the organ donor register, which, you know, was obviously what Tom was on, and he said the great thing was then you didn't have to have those awkward conversations because you'd already been granted the permission by the individual for that to happen. So if you're thinking about it, about becoming an organ donor, I would say go ahead, please do. And uh, the other thing that came out of that for Lisa was, again, having people who know CPR, how important that is at sporting clubs. And also a lot of them over here now are obviously getting defibrillators, which, again, is fantastic. Well, remember old mate, the indoor rower? Uh, yeah, Richard Wassel. Richard, Richard's yeah. story. And, you know, kept alive for hours by CPR, essentially, and hours on a submarine. Mate, so it, it's really important that people understand the basics of how those mechanisms work. It is, and I just want to plug, because uh, I know Lisa's coming down for the transplant games, but we should give them a plug. There's The sports that are going to be participated in are athletics, badminton, basketball, cycling, darts, golf, lawn bowls, petanque, uh, oh. running. It says run race. Darren Harper would be very happy. Uh, Six-a-side football, sprint triathlon, squash, swimming, table tennis, temping bowling, tennis and volleyball and if you go to the website it's very easy to find the Perth Transplant Games and you can find out where the venues are going to be and go down and have a look and cheer these people on and uh, as Lisa said some of them were doing sport before they had the transplants some of them have gone you know what I'm going to be a little bit more physical now and, and look after my body maybe a little bit better since they've had them so they're really positive stories and the athletes range in a vast number of ages.
And not only is it a celebration for those people who've received the transplants, it's also a celebration for the people who've lost someone that's enabled that person to go on and absolutely these games. Absolutely. I, I mean, I remember when it happened. We were doing the hockey, the other other one, the other yep. podcast. And, um, you know, it's it was quite shocking in the sense that this is someone who's just gone down to training. And it's not like they're in the national squads and doing, they're just an everyday plonker like you and I who's going down to enjoy a game of hockey and call down there when they're not expected to be there. And it's the last thing you would ever, ever consider was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I was reading something oh, a few months ago, John, about the number of deaths in cricket. And how there's been a massive rise in those really? in recent times. Is yeah, that you, because there's more Masters cricket? I don't know, but it, but it was just interesting to kind of read that that it's the numbers had actually gone up. I think they were saying that in the past it tended to be around the teens, you know, that you would get either somebody being hit by the ball on the head, hitting the heart, uh, having a heart attack. You know, numerous. They've got some physiological problem that's pre-existing that it, it took. It that. may have been, yeah. yeah. You know, but they, these were the. You things, don't know it twenty nah, yet, exactly. But they were saying that now it's it's risen to in the thirties in a year. Right. Uh, well, this is on a global level, um, but even so, that's that's a lot of people passing away doing something they love. Oh, absolutely, and and let's face it, death is the last thing you think about when you thinking about sport. I know, maybe if you're a Formula One driver, it might creep in there occasionally. And that's probably when you should give up. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. And um, we should always be mindful. Enjoy every moment. Absolutely. And your topic today? Well, shall we stick with the IOC? Well, why not? Or uh, the Olympics in, in okay. a roundabout way. Um, at the beginning of the week, this week, what week are we in? So uh, on Monday, 27th of March, a story appeared... Um, on the ABC and other news outlets as well. Uh, so I'll read a little bit of it. The federal, it's written by Tracy Holmes. The federal government has been warned that Australian sport is about to go backwards during its most crucial, uh, sorry, critical decade and it'll cost us gold medals. Damn, I was looking forward to a gold medal. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Unless it receives a $2 billion injection, Australian sport is in danger of failing the nation's expectations during the green and gold decade, according to the Australian Olympic Committee Chief Executive Matt Carroll. We've been a fan of some of Matt's work over the years. Oh, yeah, at Rugby Union and then oh, at the uh, FFA. Yep. Speaking at the National Press Club, Carroll's message was aimed at the federal government but came with assurances that sport must also be accountable if it was the beneficiary of a $200 million a year investment building towards Brisbane 2032. Well, that's a really bold thing to say because I've actually had this conversation with a member of parliament asking that very question in that they give so much money to various sports. And I've said, do you ever check where... That money is spent. Does it actually end up where you've intended it to be spent? Because I can tell you now, in a lot of them, it isn't. Well, and you know what their response was? We do not have the capability as a government to be able to go back and follow through and make sure that that happens. So here you go. He's saying that they've got to be held accountable. That's a great thing to say. But he knows damn well that the politics or the politicians cannot possibly 
follow up on that and make sure that they're accountable. Look, the poster boy for this sort of thing was, for me, has been the FFA and the yeah. way that they treat Football Australia now. They oh, changed their name. FA. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a national... It was, it was cerebral palsy. No, oh, yes, it was. Yeah, cerebral yeah, palsy yeah, national yeah, team. Yeah, yep. And the government gave FA a pile of money to spend on the cerebral palsy national team. What did they spend it on? Not the cerebral palsy national team. They had to fundraise themselves. Now, when sports... They have no funding. I mean, that's actually some sort of fraud when you think about it. That's fraudulent to do that with taxpayers' money. They just unilaterally decided, oh, no, we're going to go and spend it here. That's what worries me about this. You know, we've got gold medals, gold medals. Okay, so how are you going to split up this $200 million? How much are you giving football, soccer? How much are you giving rugby? How much are you giving golf and tennis for their Olympic pathways? Those sports had pathways and they pay damn good money. Yeah, and they get still good Good money. There's no reason for us to be giving any of those sports, particularly any money at all, towards their Olympic dreams. But but you know what it'll be? It'll be because the gold medals lift the nation, make us all happy and feel woo. But they will look at it and go, well, which sports are going to win the gold medals? Yeah. Prime example again. It's wait. no longer about participation. No. It's about winning medals. And we, it's you a know, joke. We, we had Ben Wright and Nang Noyan, the the uh, Paralympic yeah, weightlifters, yeah. on the show, and their funding, if you remember, got cut because they were not going to medal in the subsequent Olympic Games that was coming up. But as they said in that sport, it's an eight to twelve year period before you get to the top because you've got to build up that strength and power to be able to be one of the top guys in the world. And they cut their funding after one Olympic cycle. Well, it's the antithesis of what the Olympics is supposed to be about, I would have thought, that attitude and mentality. And I know you're not a big fan of Eddie the Eagle, but ah. he, he's, a, he's a classic example of actually why the money should be spent on those sorts of sports, and not on the sports that already have big piles of money being thrown at athletes. I mean, who, is there one guy who's playing in the Australian, or woman who's playing in the Australian sevens team that doesn't have a club contract? I'd be surprised. Yeah. And they're contracted to Rugby Australia as well. Yeah. But, but the thing as well, John, that gets me is, as you touch on, a lot of these sports have funding, or a lot of these sports know that the Olympic Games are coming up. They know they're going to have athletes or teams competing. So what are they doing already to attract money, to bring money in, to self-fund themselves? I get really worried in this country now how so many sports are like little Olivers going up asking for more porridge. You know, it is just ridiculous. Please, sir, can I have some more? Get off your ass, raise some money, come up with a plan that you're going to be self-sufficient or you're going to be able to bring in enough money to support your sporting programs. Stop going to the government. Forget about um, medals just for a second. If there was no funding whatsoever for Olympic sports, you'd still get people competing and wanting to compete at the Olympics for that gold medal. That's what used to happen when you and I were kids. Yeah, it did. There's not going to be a problem with getting people to participate because of funding. No chance. They'll always be there. They're all, yeah. So you're not, you're not actually fighting to try and get athletes with this money, are you? They're well, gonna, what, they're gonna come out of the woodwork. Well, well, how about, let's, let's throw this one in. As we know that there are, the IOC give various international sporting bodies X amount of money, depending on what's the agreement, 
for the four-year cycle. Again, going back to my argument, why can't these international sporting federations be self-funded? They should be able to support themselves with sponsorship money they bring in. So let's take a figure that we know one sport gets 15 million over four years. How about if that actually went to the athletes? So if you win the Olympics or you compete, if you're in a final, if you come eighth, you get X amount. If you come first, you get X amount. Yeah, prize money. Yeah. Prize money would be nice. Considering that the, the IOC signs billion-dollar broadcast rights deals. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's major, major. Where does that money go? Oh, let me guess. Into administration. <laughs> Matt, again, I did it again. But into administration. Uh, why not pay the athletes? And we've even had in the recent weeks, you know, the IOC talking about people who've passed away and trying to do more for the athletes and that. Pay them. That's what you can do to help athletes. Pay them so they don't feel the need to run away from their country and jump on a dodgy boat and drown in the middle of the bloody Mediterranean. Well, John, we've been doing this show for 18 years and you've banged on about Olympians being paid. Interestingly, I'm working on a book at the moment uh, relating to the 88 Seoul Olympics. And I found in May 1988, the IOC announced, that was when, of course, they announced that they were going to allow professional athletes and athletes that were paid by their military to compete officially. So 92 became the first ever professional Olympic Games. But they announced in 88 that they would pay the medal winners. Now, the money was going to come from, uh, was it Horst Dassler who was involved with ISL? His company uh, were going to be the ones who would raise the money, get the money to the athletes. But, of course, we all know what happened to ISL. And in, as a result, we all know what happened to the payment for the athletes. Never happened. Mm. Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's almost like a legal, uh, a legal crime thing going on. Uh, not illegal, illegal. It's like they've been given permission by governments across the world to just take money. Just take it. I mean, do what you like with it. Tax-free. Don't forget, they, all of these governments signed great big tax-free deals with the IOC, same as FIFA. Then they're not coming in here and actually paying their way, so to speak. We spend billions on infrastructure. Then, then there's an expectation we're going to spend at least another two billion, making sure our athletes are good enough to win something, not compete, but to win. But here's another question for you. Matt Carroll, Chief Executive of the Australian Olympic Committee, they were the ones who bid for the Olympic Games. Did they not consider this when they were bidding? Surely, if you you want to bid, you think you're going to win the medal. So why did you not consider how much money you were going to need to have that success uh, before you put in your bid? Well, okay, this is quoting Carol. Based on the federal government's forward estimates, there is a $2 billion shortfall in direct investment in Olympic, Paralympic and Commonwealth Games sports in the 10 years leading up to Brisbane 2032. So what governments in Australia want sport to achieve for the community is not going to happen. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Isn't it about athletes? It's not about what governments want sport to achieve, it's what athletes want to achieve. That's what the sporting body wants to achieve as and well. Surely the board of the sporting body decides what it wants to achieve. And to say that on the back of the fact that these people cut funding if they don't think you're good enough, it's like, and there's no guarantee, money does not guarantee anything in sport, nothing at all. You might think that it gives you an advantage, and perhaps it does, but 
you know, when they line up for that 100-metre sprint, it ain't necessarily the bloke that's had the most money spent on him as yeah, an athlete The biggest bank account is not going to win it. No, not at all. And it's just... They, but that, once again, goes back to the whole thing about all of the people that run the sport in our countries are not athletes. They're business people, or they're pretend business people. They don't, they're not actually in the real business world, are they? If they were, they'd be generating a lot more money. That's right. See ya. We'll be back next week.